All right, let's, uh, let's begin with a word of prayer, and then, then we have uh, some announcements. Let us pray. Lord Jesus Christ, Son of the living God, have mercy on us sinners. Amen. Okay, so we're doing something different today. I'm going to be modeling. Uh, Marge, would you come and say, say a few words? Oh, good morning. Um, I brought out these gowns. They are a sample of some of the gowns that are going to be modeled during the afternoon circle 135th anniversary dinner and fashion show. It's April 26th on a, a Sunday right after the 11 o'clock service. Um, we'll have about 25 gowns, and I see many of you, some of you are going to be modeling them. All the young women of the congregation are going to be modeling them um, because they're the only ones who can fit in them. <laughs> this, is a, this is a 1905 wedding dress that no one has been able to fit in yet. It is so tiny. Whoops. Oh, is this not on? Yeah. Um, and I have one more uh, fitting yet. Maybe a 13-year-old girl might be able to fit into that. This is a 1930 wedding dress. Um, and this is Carol Zemke. Some of you remember Carol Zemke. This is her wedding dress. This is her mother's wedding dress. So that's really neat. And we go all the way from 1905 up into, we have one dress from the 2000s. This is a 1960 uh, dress. So um, it's, there's wedding dresses and ball gowns, and it's just going to be a wonderful time. It's a great dinner uh, uh, catered by my chef catering. The whole family is welcome. We're going to have the dinner first, uh, then a brief intermission, and then the vintage fashion show. And then after that, we'll have a pink carpet going down the middle of the gym. And we will then invite the, any of the children there who might be wearing their Sunday best or something special or anything to model down the pink carpet. <laughs> so it's going to be a lot of fun. Yes? Oh! <laughs> Well, it's a very fragile dress, and we have one fitting today. Maybe if it doesn't fit, the 13-year-old <laughs> will consider that. Thanks. It is April 26th is the event, two, two weeks from Sunday. And um, I do have some tickets. The, the dinner is $5 a person. The church is subsidizing it, and so is Afternoon Circle. So it's very affordable, and we have a cap of $10 a family. So I have tickets if you want. If not, there'll be tickets at, uh, we'll have a table for the next two Sundays. Right? It's right after the 11 o'clock service, so at noon. Um, the two requests I might have is, if you know a videographer, we'd like to really have this for historical purposes for, Sometime down. Yes. You know someone? Okay, because I've asked two men from the congregation and they haven't been able to. So. <laughs> Who, oh, one more. Okay. And then for the children, we want to play some Disney songs as they're walking down the aisle because during dinner, Peter Savitsky is going to be singing some wonderful songs. And then during the fashion show. Bill Shuey is going to be playing the keyboard. So it's going to be a very special event. So 
uh, Disney songs, uh, if you can give me some suggestions of what you're, besides um, Let It Go. <laughs> we know that one. <laughs> right. <laughs> yes, Karen. Guests are welcome. But, I mean, the gym is limited in the amount of space we have with the runway and the tables, so if you plan on coming, I would suggest getting your reservations in and tickets early. Thank you. All right, so yeah, one more time. That's not this Sunday or next Sunday, but the Sunday after that. 12 o'clock, or depending on how long I preach, 12.05 maybe. So, um, Okay. So this is our last week uh, talking about mere Christianity. So it's our, la- it's our, it's our sort of our last chance to, to wrap things up. But before we do that, let me just mention um, the copies of the next book sitting over there. We're going to do this book, The Great Divorce, in uh, seven weeks. There are 14 chapters, so we're going to do two chapters a week. Mary Caesar is going to make some handy bookmarks. To, she, know, she knew that. <laughs> she, she's going to make some uh, handy bookmarks to help... help uh, keep us on track, but, but for next week, it'll be the first two chapters. And let me just tell you, um, it, 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 it would be helpful for you, I think, to read C.S. Lewis's introduction, uh, his preface, um, because he explains what he's doing. If you just start reading at the, at, in the first chapter, you might uh, find yourself confused about what's going on. Um, but this is a, so this is a novel, um, and it's, it's a fantasy in some sense, um, and it's, it's not intended to depict, like, literally what C.S. Lewis thinks heaven and hell are like. But, so the, so the, so the exercise for us in reading it will be um, to, to ask questions about what certain things mean. Like, what does it mean that this happens, or that this person says this thing, or what does this character represent? Okay, so that'll be, the, it'll be, a, it's kind of a literary exercise. Um, so keep that in mind as you're reading it, and engage it that way. Um, but read his preface. It's just a couple pages, and that'll, that'll fill you in on, on what he's trying to do. So we're going to start that up next week. Um, any ten, $10, yeah, um, I think that's, what, that's about where it landed. $8. $8. the bigger for change. I don't know. Um, does everybody have a copy of the handout? Okay. So uh, let's, do this. let's do this in a couple of ways. First of all... Um, do you have any questions? What are your questions? Do you have any questions? These, la- these last three chapters were kind of a hodgepodge, and in some, and in some ways they kind of got a little crazy. Um, C.S. Lewis, uh, he, you, you, maybe you noticed he gets, he gets a little speculative about some things, right? Um, which, is, which is good. It's, it's interesting. It, it, lets you know, it lets you sort of know what he's thinking. But do you have any questions? Anything sort of outstanding that you want to ask about? If not, then what we'll do is we'll just go, we'll just go, down, the, go down the outline and, um, and see what kind of questions you have as they come up. Um, and I, on the back, the back of your handout is Psalm uh, 51, which I wanted to be... This, this pertains particularly to um, the first part of this first chapter, so maybe we'll talk about that right away um, as, we, as we get into this, but um, that's sort of our, our touch point in Scripture for, for, this, for this week. So... Um, the first paragraph on the handout there is the first paragraph of the chapter. And let me just read it to you so, you can, so you, you can be reminded of what's going on. Lewis writes this. I find a good many people have been bothered by what I said in the previous chapter about our Lord's words, be ye perfect. Some people seem to think that this means unless you are perfect, 
I will not help you. And as we cannot be perfect, then if he meant that, our position is hopeless. But I do not think he did mean that. I think he meant, the only help I will give you is help to become perfect. You may want something less, but I will give you nothing less. So, so um, he's referring to, of course, uh, what, what Jesus says at the end of the Beatitudes in Matthew chapter 5. So Jesus has just said all kinds of things about, for instance, what it means to, be ang- to, to murder. means not just killing somebody, but um, hating them in your heart. And, and uh, committing adultery is not just the, the external act, but lusting after somebody in your heart. Um, and then he concludes with these really challenging words about loving your, loving your um, enemies. He says, you've heard that it was said, you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I say to you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you, so that you may be sons of your Father who is in heaven. For he makes his sun rise on the evil and on the good and sends rain on the just and on the unjust. For if you love those who love you, what reward do you have? Do not even the tax collectors do the same? And if you greet only your brothers, what more are you doing than others? Do not even the Gentiles do the same? You therefore must be perfect, as your heavenly Father is perfect. So one, uh, one, one way to uh, engage this is to ask you, how, does, how do those words of Jesus strike you? What do those words, um, what do they do to you? Be, you, must, you therefore must be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. And he's just told you. He's just told you what it means to be perfect, right? Love your enemies. Don't, uh, don't uh, take revenge on those who hurt you. Makes, what's that? Scary? Scary? Yeah, <laughs> right. Yeah, Jeanette. That's right. Okay. There you go. Yeah, that's right. That's right. Yeah. Yeah. Anything else? Yeah, Nancy. Right, right. So, so here's what I think. Um, I think in, in, in one, on the one hand, Lewis um, tempers Jesus's words a little bit too much. He says that later. He says, um, uh, "Where do I, I? I'm not sure if I have it on the on the page." He says, so, "Oh yeah, down down at the very. Let's see. Um, just before." The, the heading that says chapter 10, this is, would have been on page 205, Lu, uh, Lewis says, the command be perfect is not idealistic gas, nor is it a command to do the impossible. Well, in fact, it is a command to do the impossible, right? Because Jesus says you must be perfect, um, and you can't be perfect. Now, um, so it, it, we should, we, when we talk about how Jesus and God thinks about perfection, we should never, um, we should never sort of shy away from God's commands being pure and absolute, right? So when he says be perfect, he means it. He doesn't mean, he doesn't in fact mean try your hardest, right? He means be perfect. Now, um, he, take a look at this next quotation. This is from an article um, that I just read in a new journal that I just subscribed to, which uh, has lots of really interesting things in it. And the, so this article, the, the issue of the journal um, the journal is called The Mockingbird, or, and the issue was about work and play. Um, if, we have, if we have time to, it, to get to it, I have another, uh, a snippet of another article on um, the cult of productivity, uh, which is really interesting. Um, but this, ar- this, this article was about rest. Sabbath, the, so the title, Sabbath Time in a, work of, in a World of Work and Invitation to Rest. Listen to what this guy says about um, perfection. God rests not because he's tired, but because he's completed the work of creation. 
There's no more work to do because he's reached the end of it. This is the end in the rich sense of fulfillment or completion, in which, which in Greek is called telos and in Latin perfection, a bit of meaning that's been largely forgotten. To be perfected means to be completed. Even in English, perfect originally designated the completion of a process or growing or making, of growing or making something, like when the King James Bible talks about a, per- a person attaining the full stature of Christ by becoming a perfect man. To be perfect here does not mean to be absolutely blameless, but rather to be fully adult, which is why later translations use words like mature, as someone who has completed the process of growing up. I want to pause there. Put put your finger right there for a second. Um, This fellow has a lot of really helpful things to say, but I would disagree with him here um, that that maturity, adulthood, does in in God's eyes include being blameless. That's That's what God seeks from us, blamelessness. Right, um, so it does mean so. So going along with maturity and growth into adulthood in the Christian life includes blamelessness, following God's law. That's that's the goal. That's the having your will be aligned with God's will. That's what He wants. Okay, um, this fellow continues. Likewise, when describing something made, the underlying idea is that it was thoroughly done, per factus in Latin, just as we would now say all done. The idea is still visible uh, when Schubert's unfinished symphony is labeled an opus imperfectum, which means precisely an unfinished work, a work that is imperfect, not because it is flawed, but because it is incomplete. And here, that's a a great example. So it's it's imperfect. It's an opus imperfectum because it's incomplete. It would also be an opus imperfectum if there were wrong notes in it, right? It would be an incomplete work if he had put wrong notes in it. Um, So... The, the idea of blamelessness, we can't sort of remove from the idea of perfection, but um, when it, it is true when, uh, when Jesus is talking about perfection, he's talking about something much broader, much bigger, a bigger picture than simply um, you know, goose-stepping in line with, with a moral code. That's part of it, but, he's, but the maturity that he's talking about, the perfection, the completion that he's talking about is, um, is something much bigger. So now I want you to, I want you to think about that for a second. What are some other places um, that we hear in the Bible about um, completion or perfection? Okay. Yeah, right. right that's right, yeah. Um, Revelation talks about this all. Uh, the book of Revelation describes it so well, right? So no more tears, no more mourning, right? Um, it, it will be, that, that's when we will experience that perfection. Good, okay. Yeah. Okay. So now this is this is so rich um, because so note note how he talks about the word telos here. Um, Philip Carey, the author of this article, he says, uh, where is it? Right at the, the yeah the, the, near, near the top, which in Greek is called telos and in Latin perfectio. So uh, when Jesus is on the cross and he says it is finished, he says tetelestai, it is finished. It's the same the same root word, right? So so think about what that means for a second. If in Matthew 5, Jesus says, be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect, and then on the cross, Jesus says, it's perfect, what does that mean for you? Okay, right, so perfection, uh, that's right. So, so there's, this is, man, that's, it's a good observation. It, it comes through suffering, through the cross. Um, but what about uh, future tense, past tense, um, 
it is, right? It has been completed, right? So um, when Jesus says, be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect, and then he dies on the cross and says, tetelestai, it's finished, it's complete, it's perfect, he's done it, right? You have been made perfect, all right? Um, and that's, that's sort of the starting place for, for all of, uh, everything that we would talk about in terms of Christian maturity and Christian growth and Christian discipleship. We start by saying, look, it's already been taken care of. We're already perfect. So everything that happens in this life, everything that happens next, is, is Jesus taking our, our mortal, sinful selves and um, sort of forming them, shaping them into what we already are by virtue of our baptism, right? Little Christs, for, for put it, putting us into the image of Christ, okay? But, but it's so tempting. So the reason why I want to emphasize this is because it's very tempting, and Lewis, Lewis talks this way a lot, he always comes back and, and brings it home um, in, a very, in a very good way, in a very Christian way that, that refers back to Christ. But when we, if we spend too much time talking about perfection and, and growth um, and we lose sight of the completed work of Jesus on the cross, then, um, then we, never, we never have this attitude of humility um, when Jesus says be perfect and we never receive with gratefulness the perfection that he gives us. Does that make sense? So we always, we always return there. That's always a starting place. I mean, this is why, uh, th- uh, this is why, we, why the liturgy is the same every week, right? Uh, so you hear this all the time, but this is why we do the same thing every week, why we go to church, confess our sins, receive Jesus' forgiveness, we walk past the font, we receive his body and blood. It's because that's where it's, it's on the cross that our perfection is found. Um, now, Lewis is interested in talking, is talk, inter- interested in talking about um, what God does to us throughout the rest of our lives. So, he's, so um, he, uh, note, note what he says on page 202, and I only gave you a part of the quotation here because I realized, as often happens, that I was going to end up typing out the whole chapter on the page. So page 202, he says, uh, this is the second full paragraph. This is why Jesus warned people to count the cost before com- becoming Christians. Make no mistake, he says, if you let me, I will make you perfect. The moment you put yourself in my hands, this is what you are in for. Nothing less or other than that. You have free will, and if you choose, you can push me away. But if you do not push me away, understand that I'm going to see this job through. And that's the other place that we see, we hear the language of completion and perfection um, is in Philippians when uh, Paul writes, he who has begun a good work in you will bring it to completion. Right? Same, very same word, telos. It will reach its end. He's going to do that. Um, Okay. Yes, Donna. Okay. Good. Okay. Perfect. Yeah. Yeah. It's always better if Jesus is the one who does the action, right? So he takes us into his hands, right? The only thing that we can do, the only action that we have at our disposal is to, is to push him away. Um, but you're right. You're right. The mo- and and um, so Lewis is making making a uh, a strong point here, which which is a, which is kind of a, a point we see, for instance, in Jesus' um, parable about the sower. Right? He sows all these different kinds of seed, all, all, the seed on all, all these different kinds of ground, and in some places it springs up immediately. But you can see the sort of the, the picture that that's, that's at play. Right? Um, if you if if you if you are, you know, spring up instantly, 
but are interested in keeping part of yourself, keeping, keeping, um, holding back some part of your sinful self, uh, and keeping that from God, then you're preventing Him from doing the work that He wants to do in you, right? Which is why, which is why confession and absolution are are so are so crucial, and why, in fact, growing as a Christian and being conformed to the image of Christ consists not in only getting better and better at doing the things that Jesus wants us to do, but learning more and more how we don't do the things that he wants us to do. And to that end, let's take a look at a couple of things in the Bible. Do we have, does everybody, let me, let me pass out some Bibles here. All right, open up to uh, the first chapter of Job. There you go. Okay, so Job chapter 1. Now this is, uh, it's, it's always startling when you read, um, when you read uh, about people like Job, patriarchs like Job and Abraham and Noah, for instance, Noah's a great example because in Genesis chapter 6, when we, when we meet Noah, God dis- he's described this way by Moses. Um, he says, where is it? Uh, at some point in chapter 6, we find out that Noah was a righteous man, right? Noah was blameless. He did all that God commanded him. He walked with the Lord. He found favor in God's eyes. And the same thing we have at the beginning of Job. So Job chapter 1, here's the first five verses. There was a man in the land of Uz whose name was Job, and that man was blameless and upright. And you say right away, well, how, you know, what does that mean? How can, a, how can he be blameless and upright, right? He sounds like the model of perfection that we're, that we're, we're all admitting we can't, we can't attain, we can't accomplish, right? He was blameless and upright, one who feared God and turned away from evil. So there you get a clue at it, right? He feared God and turned away from evil. But, but, but what does that look like? There were born to him seven sons and three daughters. He possessed 7,000 sheep, 3,000 camels, 500. He was really rich. His sons used to go and hold a feast in the house of each one on his day, and they would send and invite their three sisters to eat and drink with them. Now, this is really important. Verse 5 is really important. Listen carefully. And when the days of the feast had run their course... Job would send and consecrate them, and he would rise early in the morning and offer burnt offerings according to the number of all of them. For Job said, It may be that my children have sinned and cursed God in their hearts. Thus did Job continually. So, what, what is it that makes Job a blameless and upright man? Well, he does the sacrifices to cover the Okay, okay, good. There was, there was, yeah, right. So the, so the sacrifices follow confession, right? So he, so first of all, he acknowledges on behalf of his children, and if and if on behalf of his children, then certainly, you know, on his own behalf as well, right? Um, that they may have sinned, they may have sinned in 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 their feasting, and so he's concerned about he's concerned about their standing before God. Have they do do they need some atonement for their sins, right? Um, so it begins with this acknowledgement this acknowledgement of sin, and the petition to God for forgiveness. So now let's turn to Psalm 51. Flip your page over. I, my, one, of my favorite, one of my favorite illustrations in the Bible um, in terms of understanding how righteousness works is to understand the difference between King Saul and, and David. And I, I think I've talked to, talked to you about this before, right? So Saul in 1 Samuel um, is chosen by God to be king when the, when the people of Israel um, demand a king. But Saul is proud, um, and, he, uh, and he thinks that he, um, 
he thinks that he's sort of inviolable, that he, can't, that he can, can commit no wrong. And so even though he sins, just like everybody else, when he's confronted with his sin, his response is always um, justification, self-justification. David, on the other hand, um, time and again, we see him confronted with his sin, and his response is, I've, I have mercy on me, I've sinned against God. Now, the, 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 one of the most vivid illustrations of that is, is sin against um, uh, Uriah, Bathsheba's husband, his sin with Bathsheba. And Psalm 51 comes in response to that. Um, so let's, let, here's what we're going to do. Let's just, uh, let's just read it all together here. Um, and as you read it, note a couple of things. Note, first of all, um, how David's, David's attitude towards himself and also David's attitude towards God. How does he understand? How does he understand himself, and how does he understand how God relates to him? Okay. Have mercy on me, O God, according to your steadfast love, according to your abundant mercy. Blot out my transgressions, wash me thoroughly from my iniquity, and cleanse me from my sin, for I know my transgressions, and my sin is ever before me. Against you, you only have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight, so that you may be justified in your words and blameless in your judgment. And in sin did my mother conceive me. Behold, you delight in truth in the inward part, and you teach me in the secret heart. Purge me with hyssop, and I shall be clean. Wash me, and I shall be whiter than snow. Let me hear joy and gladness. Let the bones that you have broken rejoice. Hide your face from my sins and blot out all my iniquities. Create in me a clean heart, O God, and renew a spirit within me. Cast me not away from your presence and take not your Holy Spirit from me. Restore to me the joy of your salvation and uphold me with a willing spirit. Then I will teach transgressors your ways, and sinners will return to you. Deliver me from blood guiltiness, O God, O God of my salvation, and my tongue will sing aloud of your righteousness. O Lord, open my lips, and my mouth will declare your praise. All right, great. So uh, this is a psalm to have in your back pocket. It's a long one to memorize, but, it, but it's a good one to turn to in any, in, in any case um, where, you, where you find yourself afflicted with guilt because David um, deals with it in such a, um, in such a, in a, such a Christian righteous way. So, so the first question is, what, uh, what is David's uh, attitude towards himself? How does he think of himself? And feel free to use the language of the psalm. Okay, he's repentant. Um, okay. Blameable, right. Blameworthy, yeah. 
That's, yeah, that's a great observation. Um, so here's another story to tie, to, to tie this together. Um, so the story of David and Goliath, you know how this goes, right? So, um, and this is after Saul has fallen from grace. So Saul is now a bad king, and the spirit has left him. And the Philistines are encamped against the Israelites, um, and they're sort of in this. They're sort of in this locked in this position where they, there's no there's no solution because you can't advance. Uh, no, neither neither party can advance. Otherwise, they'll be vulnerable, right? So the Philistines send Goliath, this giant, and nobody will go and fight him. Saul should. He's the king. He stands a head taller than everybody else. It's his job. He should trust in the Lord that he'll protect him. Saul should do this. Um, but who comes along to do it? David, while he's visiting, bringing cheese and bread to his brothers, right? David says, I'll fight Goliath. In fact, he says, I'll fight this uncircumcised Philistine that, that blasphemes the Lord our God, right? So first of all, he's, he's um, concerned about God's, God's name. Um, and then Saul tries to put his armor on him, right? And David says, I can't wear this. It's, I, haven't, I haven't proven it. It's too, it's too much for me. So he goes and, uh, and he gathers these stones from the brook and he goes out to fight Goliath. But um, when Goliath threatens him, it's, so, it, it's, it's, uh, it's a beautiful thing what David says. Let me read it to you. 1 Samuel chapter 18. That's 2 Samuel. 1 Samuel chapter 18, 17. Um, David says, uh, Goliath says to David, Come to me and I, and I will give your flesh to the birds of the air and the beasts of the field. Then David said to the Philistine, You come to me with a sword and with a spear and with a javelin, but I come to you in the name of the Lord of hosts, the God of the armies of Israel whom you've defied. So David has, David has skill with, um, with a sling, Right? He, he, he said to Saul, I've, defend, I've defended my sheep from bears and wolves. I, take, I grab them by the beard and I throw them down and I hack them to pieces. I can handle this giant. But, but when he's confronting Goliath, what does he say? He says, you come to me with a spear and with a javelin, but I come to you in the name of the Lord of hosts, the God of the armies of Israel whom you've defied. This day the Lord will deliver you into my hand and I will strike you down and cut off your head. So it's the Lord's action. The Lord's action. And I will give the dead bodies of the host of the Philistines this day to the birds of the air and to the wild beasts of the earth, that all the earth may know that there is a God in Israel and that all this assembly may know that the Lord saves not with sword and with spear, right? The Lord saves by his power, not with sword and spear. For the battle is the Lord's and he will give you into our hand. So, so even at, from as, as a youth, right, before he's, before he's uh, grown and committed this grievous sin, David is... Is, is saying this about himself. He's saying, it's not, it's not what I'm doing. It's what, it's what God's doing that, that makes me righteous. It's, uh, that's great. It's a great observation. What, what else? Um, in terms of David's situation, his circumstances, how does he, how does he understand himself? Um, just how bad is it? Right. Yeah. Right. Yeah. And that's what he says when Nathan the prophet uh, confronts him as well. He says, um, "I've sinned against God. I've sinned, you know, um, which isn't to, which isn't, of course, to say that he didn't sin against Uriah. But more mm-hmm. more important is that his sin is a sin against God. Yeah, that's right. Okay. 
So now, um, we've, you've already touched on this, Leah, but what's, how does he understand God's relationship to him? How does, he, uh, how does his language describe that? How does he address God? Okay, so the one who can do things, right, including um, creating a clean heart and casting, uh, renewing a spirit and not casting him away from your presence and so forth. He appeals to his mercy and his So he's not only one who can do these things, but one who will do them, right? If you So take a look at, uh, like, especially verses... Um, 7, 8, 9, 10, 11, 12. 7, 8, 9, 7 through 12. What kind of verbs are those? Do you know? This is, uh, is back to grammar school. Uh, let me hide, not, uh, create, cast me not. What kind of verbs are those? They're commands. Yeah, they're imperatives, right? So um, you only get to command God... <laughs> When you're confident in his promises, right? When he, when he has said that he will do something, then you can say to God, God, you said you would do this, do this, right? So he's got, he's got this confidence. Holly. Um, and along with that, you know, that God is always doing action in verse 16, he says, Yeah, 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 absolutely, yeah. Um, and w- now, w- here's what's really interesting. Um, let's take, where is it? Verse um, 8, he says, Let me hear joy and gladness. Let the bones that you have broken rejoice. So what, how, does that, how does that describe his relationship to God? What is God's role um, in all of this. To, yeah. To, to, to he, so, so he heals, but he heals wounds that he has, he has himself inflicted, right? Which is kind of, kind of counterintuitive and strange to hear. But the, not the bones that you have broken, right? So now... Um, he doesn't ask for them to be... Sure, right, yeah. Yeah, he asks that they rejoice, right? That they, that they rejoice. So, in some sense, he acknowledges that this suffering, that his broken bones are the natural, the, the, the warranted con- consequence of his sin. Um, but what the, the key here is that, uh, that even the acknowledgement of his sin, even the brokenness of his spirit, is not something that he has manufactured, right? Penitence, a contrite heart, is not something that you can muster up. You can't, you can't say, gosh, I really want to feel bad for sinning. It doesn't, it doesn't, and, then, and then have it happen. It doesn't work that way, right? The Holy Spirit, God himself, is the one who, who kills and makes alive. Um, Hannah, Hannah confesses that in, at the beginning of 1 Samuel. I'll just tell you right now, everything I know, I know from 1 Samuel. All my theology I get from 1 Samuel. Hannah says it at the beginning of 1 Samuel. Um, when she sings her songs, she says in chapter 2, 
Um, so you, mem- you remember how this goes. Hannah's just been given uh, this gift of a child whom she prayed for. And uh, she's, her, her prayer is this magnificent prayer that sounds a lot like the Magnificat, Mary's prayer, when she hears the Annunciation from the angel. And she starts talking not just about, about her baby, but about all the things that God does. And she says, the Lord kills and brings to life. He brings down to Sheol and raises up. It's the Lord who does these things. He, it's, it's the Lord who, who, um, who determines where broken spirits will be found and where, where, um, who will have a contrite heart. Um, and he, he affects that. He brings it about. And in the case of David, he did it through the prophet Nathan. So it's not just some sort of magical, you know, I'm going to break your spirit kind of a thing, but he does it through the voice of a prophet or through the words of the, the, words of, uh, of the, of the scriptures, right? Um, which is why, which is why um, a huge part of, of growing as a Christian is um, hearing God's word because when God speaks to you, um, he, he does this to you. He does the very thing that David describes. He breaks your spirit. He breaks your bones because he, he shows you that you're not, that you're not perfect, but then he restores them and, and lets them rejoice in his salvation, right? And he creates a clean heart in you. Okay, so any questions? How's everybody doing? Is this all making sense? Yes, Krista. I heard some, uh, the Beatitudes are only to That's right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So if so, uh, and you've heard this before, um, I'm sure, from Pastor Bruzek, right? So um, the law. The things that God tells you to do, um, it's, it can, every word can be heard two ways, right? So when God says, when Jesus says, be perfect, um, you can hear it two ways. You can hear it as um, God is putting strictures on me, giving me impossible commands to keep. I can't do this. Why would he do this to me? What, you know, um, he's a terrible God for, for asking me to do things that I can't do, right? You can hear it that way, which is a, which is a, a hearing of despair, right? Or you can hear it, as Krista just described, as a description of completion, of perfect, of telos, of the telos, of what he, what he has in mind for you, which is fulfilled in Jesus, right? Which is, uh, you know, so why is there a crucifix at the center of the sanctuary? It's because it's there that um, all of this is fulfilled and given to you, right? Um, so there's two ways you can hear it. There's two ways you can hear it. Um, and uh, the you'll always hear it. You'll always um, be tempted to hear it um, in a way that leads you to despair. Which is why I encourage you. I encourage you when you when you pray, pray like David does, because he uh, his confession of sin is never unaccompanied by confidence, complete confidence in God's um, forgiveness. Right? He always he always gets us there. He always um, solves the problem. God always solves the problem for David um, by forgiving him. Okay? All right. Any other questions, comments? Okay. So let's see what else we got here. I put partial quotes, and now I don't remember what was, um, what was so good about it. Let's look at the bottom of page 202. Um, this paragraph begins, and yet, this is the other and equally important side of it. So now, here, okay, this is great. Okay, I remember now. This helper who will, C.S. Lewis writes, in the long run be satisfied with nothing less than absolute perfection will also 
Be delighted with the first feeble stumbling effort you make tomorrow to do the simplest duty. As a great Christian writer pointed out, every father is pleased at the baby's first attempt to walk. No father would be satisfied with anything less than a firm, free, manly walk in a grown-up son. In the same way, he said, God is easy to please but hard to satisfy. So, um, I want to know, how does that strike you? What do you, what do you think about that? Okay, tell me why. Okay, that, yeah. That, and you can't have too many years as a living. Right. Yeah. Right. So, so, he, so here's I think would be the you can you can understand a lot of these things in, um, that C.S. Lewis says um, in a in sort of a um, with with qualifications, right? And here's the qualification here: the reason why why God is satisfied with your first feeble attempts at at doing what He says is not because you're you're giving it your best shot. It's not because you're giving a go of it. It's because Jesus already did it for you, right? And for some reason, that's all you can do. Yeah, that's right. That's right. And, which means that um, even the first feeble attempts are nothing less than perfect in God's eyes. They're not feeble. They're not imperfect, right? Okay, so Luther has this, it might be, it might be apocryphal, but, but Luther talks about how um, it, no, I, I, think it's, I think it's when he's describing the, how the good works that the monks think they're doing, the, the super arrogation, the extra works that they think they're doing on behalf of all the people, how it's not actually all that good. He says, the, the young maiden who changes the stinky diaper of her baby does a better work than those. And why? Because she trusts in Jesus while she's doing it. Because she has faith in Jesus. Um, and that's precisely, uh, it's, it's a little bit, it's missing from what Lewis says here. But, the, but, but for the Christian, there is no such thing as feeble attempts. Um, all, of your, all of your works are righteous in God's eyes because, because of Christ, right? You are perfect. Okay? Any questions? Yeah. But regardless, sometimes I can take comfort that, well, at least the Lord can still have good use of me. That I can be a cracked yeah, Absolutely. Yeah. And yet he, he can still work for me. And, and, it's, and, it's, and it's, it's nothing short of a promise e- either, right? So um, uh, it's, what is it, Ephesians, um, that he has, that all of the things that, um, that, that you do, all of the good works that you do, which as a Christian, you know, you do good works. It's just... Um, by definition, that's what Christians are doing, are good works. They've all been foreordained by Jesus for his purpose. Set aside. You, they've been set aside. You've been consecrated for a holy purpose. You are, um, you're, you're, uh, you're a priest in the kingdom of God because Jesus has, met, has baptized you, which means that you, that you serve everybody um, perfectly because you're doing exactly what Jesus has given you to do. And it's, I mean, it's, it's, it's great comfort, and it's, it's comfort, and so... This is where, um, if, if, we had, if we had time to get to this article on the, the cult of productivity, maybe I'll just hand this out to you. Um, this is just part of the article. Um, this is where uh, it, 
understanding things like um, how, how culture views success and uh, measures progress can be really important because we fall victim to it. And um, we feel like we have to um, be better or be diff- somehow different than we are or do something different than what, what God has given us to do. Um, and sometimes it's more obvious than you think. Um, the, question is, the question is so often, well, I just don't know what, what God wants me to do. Um, and the answer is, he wants you to do what you're doing. <laughs> and he wants you to do it trusting in him, right? Um, that's, 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 all, that's all he's asking of you, is that you, that you trust in him while you do it. Okay? Um, so take a look at that on your own time. If you want the, if you want the rest of the article, I, can, I, can, I didn't have time to copy the, the whole thing. Um, okay, any, any questions at this point? We're, we're cruising along two pages into the chapter here. Um, let's go to the third page. Um, nope, let's skip that one. Okay, um, uh, I really like what Lewis says on page 204. And this is the first full paragraph on page 204. So... Uh, almost just past halfway down the page, he says. And this is where Lewis, again, brings it, brings it home. He always has a way of doing this. At times you feel like he's, he's wandering a little bit and, and, and leading us into places that, we, that make us uncomfortable, but then he always brings it back. So he says, here's another way of putting the two sides of the truth. On the one hand, we must never imagine that our own unaided efforts can be relied on to carry us even through the next 24 hours as decent people. If he does not support us, not one of us is safe from some gross sin. On the other hand, no possible degree of holiness or heroism which has ever been recorded of the greatest saints is beyond what he is determined to produce, and I would say, and does produce, in every one of us in the end. The job will not be completed in this life, but he means to get us as far as possible before death. Okay, so this is, this is, the, this is the picture of the... So we often describe the, the Christian life as both now and not yet, right? So this is the picture of the not yet. This is where he's taking us. The now is that we are perfect in Christ. Um, we, have, we, we do produce works that are as great as those of the holiest saints and the greatest works of heroism ever recorded um, because we're Christians, because, because we're faithful. On the other hand, without his support, we would be um, at risk of committing even the grossest sins, right? And so, and so Lewis warns us against ever, ever thinking that we've, we've gotten here on our own, right? Don't, so don't, I mean, the, the, the warning is stern. Don't ever, don't, don't forget it. Remember, remember where you've been, where you've come from. Any questions? Okay, good. Let's flip a few pages here. Chapter 10 um, I'm on page 207 now. Um, and this, this is an interesting chapter. He sort of sh- shifts gears a little bit, um, but he engages what I think is a very lively question for a lot of people who are not Christians, right? And this is, the, this is the second full paragraph. I think this is the right moment to consider a question which is often asked, if Christianity is true, why are not all Christians obviously nicer than all non-Christians? And if you spend... <laughs> And if you, and if you uh, so I mean, so churches are, are notoriously not collections of nice people, right? That's not what, that's not what defines, I mean, St. John is great. You are all very nice people, but, <laughs> but it's not like the, the niceness of people is what makes, what makes a church a church, right? So um, 
thinking about what you read in the chapter and also just what you what you know, generally speaking, what's the answer? What's the answer to the question? Okay. Okay. Good. All right. Yeah. So, um, and and Lewis Lewis makes a big deal out of you don't know where somebody's starting from, what their starting point is, right? So, um, and and he has this great uh, this great bit about natural gifts, right? So there might be somebody for whom it is very easy to be nice, but who is not a Christian, right? A really nice, not non-Christian. Um, in which case, the measure, of, the measure of their growth as a Christian, if they, if they became a Christian, would not be, have you become a nicer person? In fact, as he says um, on page 211, it's, it's kind of silly to think that niceness is, is what God is demanding. In fact, it has nothing to do with niceness, right? It's not about, it's not about niceness. Um, niceness is one of the manifestations, one of the things that, and, and, and it boils down to love, right? So love intends to be nice, but, in some, but at, at the same time, love isn't always nice, right? Sometimes, sometimes love um, says difficult things, things that, that aren't, you know, aren't received in a very friendly way. Um, but that's not, the measure of, that's not the measure of the new man, right? Um, which is where the title of the, of the chapter comes in, Nice People or New Men, right? So he, he intends to make of us new people, not just nicer people. Right, right. And, uh, but I think the world has a view of God that he is love. Yeah. You know, and uh, so the Christians, <laughs> they have to be loved, uh, or they should love each other. Well, and, the defi- and, the, and the definition of love that the world applies to God is, is not his definition of love, right? So, um, so you, can, you can, if you say, if you say to anybody on the street, is it true that God is love? I bet you a majority would say, yeah, that sounds, that sounds right, and that's great because that means all of these wonderful things, right? What, what they would, wouldn't be unprepared to say is that his love is manifest in the, in the cross, right? And that his love, that, that, that receiving his love involves suffering, right? Leah? Yeah. Right. 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 Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, and 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 at the same time, it's um, you know, we often associate the the word nice with a personality too, right? So it's not, you know, it's not about personalities, right? You can have you can have. I don't know the crankiest, the crankiest person in the world could they can can nonetheless be, uh, you know, the most faithful Christian, right? It's just that's their personality, right? And there's a difference. And this is uh, this is something that's uh, that often comes up in confession and absolution, right? What uh, what what what's what's the character of sin? Is being cranky, um, or is is uh, is is failing to be nice? Is that is that sin? Um, it's not always it's not always the case, right? Um, that that's that's really what's going on, or that's what that's what is that statement? Um, yeah, Leah. 
Right. And so you could have That's exactly right. Yeah, yeah. So, um, yeah, uh, right. Um, and oftentimes, um, and this is just something to know about ourselves, and I think, I think you probably do know it about yourself, that, that you can be nice, um, you can be nice in a way that is self-justifying, right? So, look, look how nice I've been to these people, right? Uh, aren't I such a great person? Well, what, is, what does God see? It's, again, uh, First Samuel, oh my goodness. Um, when uh, Saul sins and, and God says to Samuel, You've got, I've got another person in mind, he goes and finds the sons of uh, Jesse of Bethlehem and they line him up and they, he says the, about the first one, this one's, he looks like a king, he's gotta, it's got to be him. And they go down the line and it's none of them and God says to Samuel, um, you're looking at appearances, That's, which is not what God looks at, God looks at the heart, right? Um, and that's true. I mean, that's that's and that's that's what's that's what's summed up here um, in whether God is making us into nice people or into new men. And if we measure, so so we want to be nice, um, as as Pastor Brzezik often says, for the sake of giving a winsome witness, right? So kindness and charity and mercy and love, these are these are things that we can display um, to people as a, in an effort to. To, to show Christ to them. This is what Christ is like. But if we rely on our display of those things to be somehow a measure of our, our success as Christians, then we're, we're, we're looking in the wrong place. We're looking at our navels, like you said. Okay. Any other questions? Now, let's flip, let's flip the page. We, we're going to get there. Okay. Um, chapter 11, The New Men. Now, what is this about? Um, oh, so here, again, Lewis brings it all together and, su- and sums it up, just everything, that, uh, basically everything you've been saying so far, which is great. Um, you're, I think you're right on board. Uh, Lewis says, this is page 226, I think the very end. Yeah, second to last page. The very first step is to try to forget about the self altogether. Your real new self, which is Christ's and also yours, and yours just because it is his, will not come along as long as you are looking for it. It will come when you are looking for him. The great, uh, a great um, text for this in the Bible is in Galatians. Um, uh, Paul writes about justification, about being right before God. And he says in chapter 2, verse 20, I have been crucified with Christ. So this is what happens in baptism. You've been crucified with Christ. Christ is yours. Christ lives in you. It's no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And the life I now live in the flesh I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. That sums it up, right? That's, that's the whole story right there. So um, you forget about your, the self altogether. You direct your attention. You focus your eyes on Christ and your neighbor, and, and the rest of it falls into place, right? Your, your concerns about whether you're a nice person or whether you're becoming better or doing better or um, growing, you know, those sorts of things, those sorts of things follow when you when you cast your gaze on, on Christ and then learn from him, okay? And, and when you direct yourself outward towards your neighbor. I mean, it's when, so if you find yourself struggling, you know, with, uh, for instance, um, you know, pride is such a, is, is such a, uh, um, a subtle thing 
that we all sort of wrestle with at some level. And uh, one of the, the challenges is often asking, you know, what, what do we do with it? What, what do you do when you discover pride in yourself? How do you, how do you deal with it? Well, um, or selfishness, right? How, how, so I, I know I'm a selfish person. What, what, am I, what do I do about it, right? Well, when you, when you, when you encounter those sorts of things, the, the answer is don't spend more time looking at yourself, right? Don't spend more time, you know, in your own head, sorting it out. It's been sorted out, so now it's time to look, to look outward, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, so that's, that's the, I mean, that's, that's the, the character of, of Christian discipline. That's the character of Christian, the, the exercise of being a Christian is always uh, catching ourselves when we, when we look, when we're, when we're gazing inwardly and redirecting ourselves to look outwardly. Okay. All right. Any questions? Good. Then next week, Pastor Nelson will take you through the first two chapters of this. It's really, uh, it's, it's a little, okay, so if you haven't read it before, it's a little bit weird. It's a little bit strange. Just be prepared for that. Um, but like I said, read it, read it um, get, being ready to ask yourself and ask Pastor Nelson, what, does, what, do the, what, what is the significance of this thing what is this strange thing that's happened or this strange person? What does that mean? What does it stand for? Okay? All right. Let's pray. Lord, remember us in your kingdom and teach us to pray. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come. Thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our trespasses as we forgive those who trespass against us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever and ever. Amen. Thank you very much. Yeah.